George Monbiot is one of Britain's best-known climate writers, activists, and personalities. His new book, Regenesis, focuses on how we can feed the world without destroying the planet. George, welcome to Downstreet. Thanks very much, Harry. It's really great to be here. How are you doing? Today's launch day for your new book. Yeah, it's sli- slightly hassled, a bit running around going on, but um, yeah, it's it's looking good. Um, apparently, people want to read it, which That's is always, always a nice surprise. <laughs> yeah. Listen, you, you became a vegan a few years ago. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty dramatic um, step for anybody to take. And obviously, you've been immersed in this literature and this world for your entire adult life. Was there a moment or an event that triggered that realization, I have to be a vegan? There was. Um, I'd, I was down in Devon um, exploring what was meant to be this really beautiful little river, which was maybe swarming with life, with otters, kingfishers, trout, salmon, brook lampreys, everything. And you could smell it from 50 meters away. And when I got down to the river, I saw that there was nothing growing in it except sewage fungus. It was just this dead ditch. So I followed this upriver and eventually came to this pipe, which was just pouring something disgusting straight into the river. And I followed the pipe up the hill and came to some slurry lagoons attached to a dairy farm. Um, and and the pipe had actually been built from the slurry lagoons into the river. So it was deliberately pouring cow shit into this beautiful river and it killed at least two miles of it, possibly more. So I thought, right, this is this is a job for the Environment Agency Pollution Hotline. And I rang them up and then, oh, thanks very much, sir. Right, yes, yeah, so, you know, and the rest of it. And and then I, I, I took photos and sort of documented it all. Um, wrote it up in the guardian um which you know you'd think if anything's going to get some action you know exposure like that would would do it two weeks later phoned them up and said um so what what's happening and they said oh we decided to take no action sir uh because it's not a serious pollution case i said what, what do you mean it's not a serious pollution case they've wiped out at least two miles of river completely destroyed it here and it's deliberate you know you can see what they've done yes sir but we found no evidence of a fish kill I said, of course you found no evidence of a fish kill. There aren't any fish left to kill. There haven't been for six months since this has been pouring in the river. Well, thanks very much for your concern, sir. And 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 so I wrote that up saying, you know, what's a farmer have to do? Explode an atom bomb to get prosecuted. And um, and then I had two whistleblowers from the Environment Agency got hold of me and said, we've been instructed from the top not to prosecute dairy farms. And And I looked into it more and found that Dairy farming is is the primary cause of agricultural pollution of rivers, and that farming is the top cause of water pollution in this country. We've heard about the the sewage system and what that's doing to our rivers. We we know all about that. It's horrendous. Even worse now is what farming is doing, and it's mostly caused by these big livestock units either directly pouring cow shit and pig shit and the rest of it into the river or spreading far more of it on the land than the land can absorb and then it washes off into the river same effect um and and it was on the back of that i thought right i've seen quite a few arguments for veganism now but this is a clincher yeah it's something i've spoken to uh, about multiple people actually it's interesting so i read your book and obviously over the last couple of months people watching this may have watched the interview you did with earthling ed half earth socialism we did a podcast with them on navara fm and the arguments are just so powerful mm-hmm. and overwhelming. Even if you don't care about animal rights, even if you don't care about future pandemics, 
there's the biodiversity thing. And then, of course, people think, well, that's just a nice thing to have, biodiversity. But one of the really exceptional parts of this book is just how you identify the central role of animal agriculture in the decimation of the planet and 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 really how it's equivalent almost to our use of fossil fuels. Is that a fair assessment to say that animal agriculture is as bad for the planet as our addiction to fossil fuels? Yeah, I think that is I think it is fair to say because you know, we all know fossil fuels are doing a huge amount of damage, but I think it's a sort of full spectrum nature of what animal agriculture is doing. So it's this massive cause of habitat destruction. You know, farming um, is the world's primary cause of habitat destruction. By far the most expansive form of farming is animal farming. Um, it's it's the primary cause of species loss, um, the major cause of extinction. Um, it's uh, responsible for 80% of the deforestation this century. Um, it's a very big cause of climate breakdown of air pollution, which we don't talk about uh, uh, much. It's um, of, of soil loss, of water pollution. I mean, it, the list just goes on and on. And it, it's hitting just about all our Earth systems. And it's it's perfectly plausible to see how we can all thrive and have a thriving living world with 10 billion people on the planet. It's really difficult to see how we can do that with 10 billion people eating meat on the planet. And unfortunately, you know, people obsess about the human population, but that's only rising at 1% a year. The livestock population is rising at 2.4% a year. That's the real population crisis. And the reason for that is that other countries are converging on our level of meat eating. So in the UK, on average, we eat 82 kilograms of meat a year, which is roughly our body weight. Pretty revolting when you think about mm. it. And, and the global average is half of that. But it's catching up. And so, so this sort of great wave of meat eating is coming. And already the cost is unsupportable. And yeah. And there isn't a good way of doing it. I mean, you even talk about how just purely in terms of carbon emissions. So forget the water pollution, et cetera. The carbon emissions, I think you say four kilos of beef is around the same as a flight between London, New York return. Yeah. Well, that's the carbon opportunity cost. So there's two really important issues here, which I call current account carbon and capital account carbon. So the current account carbon of livestock is um, the carbon dioxide of the machinery moving about, the methane and nitrous oxide, which the animals themselves produce. Um, and that is huge already. But much more importantly is this capital account carbon, which is a carbon opportunity cost of, of livestock. And that is the carbon you would be absorbing if they weren't there. So um, huge tracts of the planet, it's 28% of the planet have been turned into livestock grazing, um, but into pastures. And uh, uh, that was all either forest or natural grassland or wetland um, or, um, or savanna or other wild habitats, which not only are crucial for ecosystems, but also tend to store masses of carbon. And pasture by comparison, especially pasture that's been so-called improved to, to make it more productive for livestock, stores much less carbon um, than those natural ecosystems. And, and average across the world, according to a paper in Nature, the carbon opportunity cost of a kilo of beef is um, twelve hundred and fifty um, um, kilograms of carbon dioxide, and so yeah, that's um, four kilos. You're talking flying to New York and back. 
Just astonishing yeah. to think that if you're having a barbecue for people and you're, you know, putting on a bit of a spread and actually that would be the same amount of emissions through this lens as, as a flight. And aviation, I mean, it's only 3% of CO2 emissions. I'm not here to champion aviation, but it's very strange how it's kind of the center point of the debate. People say, well, you fly, it means you're a hypocrite. But nobody says, well, you had a barbecue at the weekend for 10 people. That makes you a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is amazing, isn't it, that we, 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 we're just not um, focused on, on, on issues like that when we urgently need to be. And, and it's partly because, I think, we've been lulled by these bucolic idols, these myths about um, uh, the livestock grazing in a pasture as being pure and innocent um, and the life of the city being evil and corrupt. And these go back a very long way. They go back to the Old Testament. They go back to Theocritus in the classical tradition in third century uh, BC, um, a Sicilian writing in Alexandria. Um, and, and that these pastoral myths is sort of the pastoral ideal of, um, the shepherds sitting under the tree, playing their pipes, singing songs, having sex with each other, not actually doing any work. Um, and that was then mirrored, you know, in the Old Testament, um, not the sex bit, but all, all the rest of it, basically, and looking back with nostalgia to their ancestors, like Abraham, whose herds darkened the land. Um, the, these were the good people. You know, um, Abel was a herder. Cain was a tiller of the ground. Cain was the bad guy. The herders are the good guys. And, um, and, and, you know, there was, they were always at, at, at odds with each other. And, and that is what the brilliant cognitive historian Jeremy Lent calls a root metaphor. It's so deeply embedded in our minds that we no longer recognize it even as, as, as something which isn't just a natural part of the world. And it was, uh, while it's got these very deep roots, it, it was revived strongly um, in the Renaissance across Europe. And then it sort of died away for a while. And then it's come back with a vengeance over the past 50 years or so, partly in books for very young children, um, where the livestock farm is idealized as this place of safety and comfort where you've got your rosy cheek farmer and you've got one cow and one pig and one horse and one sheep and one cat and one dog all living in harmony together. No mm. idea of what they're doing there or, or what might await them while they're on the farm. But this livestock farm, which is you know, very often a place of horror, is, is conceived at the dawning of consciousness when we're most susceptible to influence as as this great place of of safety and coziness and then even more powerfully perhaps uh is sunday night tv which is all like chasing sheep around you know country file yeah exactly it's country file it's all the lambing programs it's all this sort of shepherdess and shepherding programs and it's pure classical greek pastoral you know it's just and it's it's all bullshit because, you know, they, they, they never tell you, for instance, how these people make their money. Because they don't make it by selling sheep at auction. You know, it's, it's loss-making. It's massively loss-making. And in economic terms, the sheep are worse than ornamental. You know, they're, they're just there to give the impression of farming so you can receive the real income in the form of farm subsidies. Um, and, you know, they, they're, the way they actually make their money is sitting on the computer filling in a subsidy form. But nobody wants to see that on TV, you know. Here, Shep, here, Shep, find the subsidies. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't really make great TV, does it? And, and so, so we, we're brought up with these profoundly 
misleading myths about what meat production involves and what's good and what's bad. And, and so we don't go near farming. We don't want to criticize it because it's so deeply embedded in our minds as, as being something good and something which is beyond challenge. Mm. I suppose when you think about the Amazon, another statistic in the book is I think you say that there's several hundred times more soy farming in the Amazon today than I think in 1960, 61. I can't remember the exact figure. Yeah, I think I think it's six hundred times. Yeah. It's now an area the size of Spain in in the Saharu and southern fringes of the Amazon in Brazil. Yeah, and I mean this, these are crops which overwhelmingly seventy five percent of soy goes to feeding livestock. It's not to make soy milk, and we we don't get to blame vegans and soy boys, despite all the sort of online memes saying so. So we're destroying the Amazon not to feed ourselves, but to feed animals to then feed ourselves. There's this extraordinary and rather terrifying symmetry. So so I, I looked at what's going on in the catchment of the River Wye, um, at the border between England and Wales, and um, and this really stunning, beautiful river, I mean, it's really an amazing place, has just been wiped out in the last four or five years. Um, the All the, the big weeds have died off. Um, huge number of the fish and insects have gone. It has gone from being clear to being murky. It's gone from being fresh to being slimy. It's literally slimy. If you fish, swim in it, you can feel the slime on your skin and it stinks. And the reason for that is the whole catchment has now been filled with these enormous chicken factories, these huge steel sheds with tens of thousands of chickens in each one. And, 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 all that soya from from Brazil and maize from North America is is channeled through those chickens, and a lot of the nutrients are pooped out by the chickens, and then the farmers spread it on the fields. Ostensibly, they're using it as fertilizer, but there's far too much. The, the soil simply can't absorb that amount of nutrient, which is all coming from Brazil, and so that washes off and kills the rivers. But if you go back to where it's being grown, you know these enormous tracts of land being completely wiped out, possibly with devastating consequences because um, it's it's the Sahadu and the Southern Amazon which helped to propel what are called rivers in the sky, these, these great bands of wet air which travel around the tropics and are responsible for driving many of the world's weather systems. And and we're looking, we're coming very close to a tipping point now in the Sahadu region. The whole thing could collapse because the hydrological cycle there's been cut off, and in which case there could be global consequences of that. But already we're seeing these most extraordinary effects. So because of all the, this land being ploughed up and then fertilised to provide this feed for animals, mostly in rich nations, um, huge amounts of fertilizer are sluicing off the ground. You, the great majority of fertilizer you put on the ground is lost. Um, huge amounts sluicing off the ground into these huge rivers like the um, Tapajois and the Xingu and the Tocantins, um, having devastating effects on those rivers, these amazing places absolutely stuffed with endemic fish species and all the rest. That then gets channeled into the Amazon, similar impacts. The Amazon then pushes those fertilizers out to sea. Until a few years ago, there was this weed called sargassum, which was mostly confined to the Sargasso Sea and a few other patches. It's a floating seaweed. But since all that fertilizer has been pouring into the sea, since 2011, for six months every year, this extraordinary phenomenon occurs where you get a continuous band of sargassum weed starting in the Gulf of Mexico, coming down the coast of South America, 
and then going right the way across the Atlantic to the shores of West Africa, 9,000 kilometers long. And this itself has devastating impacts because um, while it's alive, it oxygenates the water. But then when it dies, it sucks the, the oxygen out of the water and creates dead zones. Um, it, it, has, it completely changes the ecology. And because it's been fertilized by this livestock feeding operation, it, it, it's girdling a quarter of the planet. So how have you found veganism personally as a transition? Obviously, you've made the arguments from the perspective of sustainability and a, a, a hospitable planet for future generations, which is obviously the most important thing. Has there been a downside personally? Have you enjoyed it? Have there been benefits? I thought it would be really difficult, um, not least because I really loved cheese. Mm. <laughs> I was a cheese fanatic. You know, I loved every kind of cheese and all those sort of strong and weird flavors. And um, and I thought, how am I going to do without this? And so anyway, I sort of started. And, and it's really weird. It's like your body plays a trick. Within a couple of weeks, it was like, oh, why would I want to eat that lump of lard? You know, suddenly cheese is sort of revolting to you. There's something, there's some weird thing goes on in your brain which says, I'm not eating that anymore. It's no longer my kind of food. I don't, and then you don't like it anymore. It's, it's, it's strange. And there are moments, there are moments when I think, oh, that looks nice. Yeah. But fewer and fewer. And, and I, I don't miss it. And, and the immediate impact it had was I lost a stone and a half. Wow, um, and have kept it off, and um, and feel much better for it. Um, in fact, there's quite a lot of um, recent um, data coming out suggesting that veganism is a, a healthy option as long as you eat carefully. I mean, same with all diets, but you know you've got to be careful to maintain your vitamin B12 levels. And so I use um, 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 nutritional yeast and yeast extract, and mm. uh, and put a bit of seaweed in some things, and um, and that seems to do it pretty well. I mean, I was saying this to Ed Winters, Earthling Ed, that you know, if you're a, a male who's over forty, even it's pretty, it's a pretty good diet because all the things that are likely to do us in stroke, coronary heart disease, etc. There's a great deal of evidence showing that it's um, it helps mitigate it. Insecticide. We we talked briefly about fertilizers. I don't think we mentioned pesticides. No, no. What is what is going on with pollinators and bees, and and how bad of a problem is this? It's it's really frightening. So um, there's one study which suggests that farmland in the U.S. in 25 years has become 48 times more toxic to bees. Wow. And of course, it's not just bees. You know what we what's ma mostly driving this is a class of pesticides called neonicotinoids, um, which are ostensibly banned in the EU and still so far in the UK, but they keep getting all these exemptions, you know, so all oh, our sugar beets not doing very well, we need some neonicotinoids, oh, all right, then go and slap them on. And these are, they, should, they shouldn't be called insecticides, they should be called biocides, because they take out entire ecosystems. So there was an interesting study in Japan in an area where they'd never been used, and um, it was in the farmland around Lake Shinji in Japan. And um, and after the first year of use there, the, plank the weight of plankton in the lake fell by, I think, 83%. And the fish catch for local fisher, fisher people fell by 90% just with one year of use. And, you know, they weren't spraying it into the lake. This was just bottom of the catchment. It was everything was flowing off the land into there and had taken with it anything which stood in its way on the way. So it's not just 
the above-ground insects, which are being wiped out at horrifying speed by this class of pesticides. A lot of the soil animals, too, are being killed by them. Then the freshwater creatures and, you know, in the ri rivers and, and in the lake. And who knows what happens when it gets into the sea? The, the work hasn't been done yet, but it's probably lethal. And the, the same route applies here, which is industrial factory farming, trying to maximise yields using chemicals which have no place near food. So again and again, we, we what we see happening is new farm chemicals are developed. Um, they are scarcely tested. Um, they get approval before there's been any effective s testing at scale individually, let alone in concert with the other farm chemicals which are being deployed. And so often it's a cocktail of toxins, which is dangerous. And then they're deployed. And then afterwards, you suddenly start finding out all these effects which weren't on the can. And of course, once they've been, once they're being widely used, then it's much harder to put them back in their box. You talk about an uninhabitable planet. You talked about a, a, a tipping point with regards to the Amazon a, a few moments ago. What does an uninhabitable planet mean? Because I think there's something of a debate here with regards to climate change. People say, well, look, it's not an existential threat. It's a civilizational threat. So clearly, the world we live in today wouldn't be able to carry on in a century or two from now if we don't act. Where do you stand on that? Do you, do you think this is a genuine threat to Homo sapiens or to just market capitalism? Or it, It's hard to know because we haven't seen the other side of it. But the crucial thing to understand here is that what we're looking at in, in just about everything important on Earth is a complex system. And, and complex systems, it, that means a very particular thing. These are um, systems which, which are created by billions of decision points acting randomly, but in concert, to uh, which have these weird self-regulating properties. So, so you bring together all those decision points, whether it's the global financial system, um, whether it's an ice sheet, whether it's um, the soil, whether it's the atmosphere, whether it's the oceans, a forest the human brain, the, the human body. Um, these are all complex systems. And, and, and they're sort of randomly self-organized. It's a really weird counterintuitive property that they have. And, and through feedback loops, they maintain an equilibrium state within a certain range of stress. But if you push them out of that stress, those feedback loops, far from damping down the any shocks which that system is subject to amplify and transmit those, those those shocks, and and if it goes too far, too much stress is applied. Instead of there being gradual change, those systems reach a tipping point. Once they pass the tipping point, they collapse into a completely different equilibrium state. Now, the current sort of generalized equilibrium state of these systems of systems, the Earth system, which com comprises all those different systems, often acting in concert, they, mm. they can't be meaningfully separated from each other. You know, we, we separate them to study them. We say, Oh, this is the ecosystem. This is the atmosphere. This is the ocean. Mm. This is the soil. You know, they're, they're totally interlinked and, and they, there's a sort of gigantic system of systems called the living planet. Um, um, the, the one, the equilibrium state that we live in at the moment is the one that we evolved to live in. And most of life on earth evolved to live in that equilibrium state. If it flips into a very different equilibrium state, as it has done during previous mass extinctions, um, 
it could become hostile to most forms of multicellular life, as indeed has happened. I mean, the, the classic case being the Permo-Triassic extinction 251 million years ago, where um, on one estimate, 90% of species disappeared and nearly all large vertebrates species went. And a large vertebrate species is an animal with a backbone. We are a large vertebrate species. And what happened in that case was the collapse of one Earth system triggered the collapse of others. Mm. Um, so it, it it seemed to have happened with atmospheric effects, a combination of carbon dioxide and, and from volcanoes and acid rain from the same source. That then wiped out a lot of the vegetation, which meant a collapse of the soil, which got stripped off the land. Um, that then caused deoxygenation in the oceans. That then stopped the ocean circulation system. That then prevented the um, distribution of temperature, of, of, of heat around the um, planet, uh, creating a great sort of polarization of heat and cold. And it just became a hostile place for most of what was there before to live in. And there was a remnant dwarf fauna there for millions of years before it gradually recovered and we saw the sort of um, um, refornation taking place in the Triassic and then uh, much richer ecologies in, in, in the Jurassic. But that took tens of millions of years. Do you think something similar could happen in the short to medium term, I'm talking in, in in ecological terms here. So over thousands of years. Well, well, if it, if it happens, it would happen very quickly. It, it probably so quicker than a thousand to, years. Oh, oh yeah, no, no, because these tipping points are likely to be extremely rapid. I mean, tipping points are in a classic example to talk about another complex system. The soil. The soil is a is a complex ecosystem, really extraordinary, amazing system, um, which has been very understudied. The soil in in the state of nature is is a very effective self-regulating system which has extraordinary structural resilience because of the way it's constructed by the animals that live in it. It's a biological construction like a wasp's nest or a beaver's dam, but immeasurably more complex. And it's built by the animal, well, not just the animals, the organisms that live in the soil, starting with bacteria who use the um, carbon in the soil as cement to stick together the tiny particles. And they make these catacombs in which they live, which trap oxygen and water and make homes for themselves. And then the um, little soil animals make homes out of those catacombs and make them into bigger catacombs. And then the soil giants like um, ants and worms, um, they then turn those into still bigger ones. It's fractally scaled and it's amazingly resilient. And it's this extraordinary self-regulating system created by the random interactions of the billions of creatures that, 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 that live in the soil. And within, in the state of nature, it's, it's highly stable. But if you hit that soil again and again with plowing, with fertilization, with new nicotinoid pesticides and other things like that, and degrade and degrade and degrade it, you might not notice much change for quite a while. And then a major drought comes along and in those circumstances, when you're hit by a big drought, the rate of erosion can rise 6,000-fold from one day to the next. The soil structure just collapses. It's that external shock. It's the butterfly's wings, which just tips the whole system. External shock, which tips it from one equilibrium state to another, and that state is called a dust bowl. And, and the basic mechanics of that were broadly understood in the US in the 1930s when they lost... Yeah, this unbelievable quantity, like 4 million hectares of fertile land just blew away um, it, with extraordinary speed. And there was a US government report in 1937, which said, 
One man cannot stop the dust from blowing, but one man can start it. And that is, uh, they intuitively grasp what we now know is a consistent principle of complex systems, which is called hysteresis. And what hysteresis means is that if your system tips, the energy required to push it back into its previous state is much greater than the energy that was required to tip it. So, so in this respect, a complex system is like a boulder perched on top of a hill wedged in place by a pebble. And if you pull that pebble out, that boulder will roll to the bottom of the hill. But to get the whole boulder up, back up to the top of the hill, you'd have to push the boulder up, up the hill. And, and, and so on any human time scale, realistically, when it's tipped, it's tipped, it's gone. We've lost it forever. How do we know when a system is approaching a tipping point? Because its outputs begin to flicker. You, you, you see sort of wild perturbations in, um, in the sort of visible signs of what that system does. And when you look at the massive heat shocks we've had recently, um, in India and Pakistan this year, in Canada and, and, and the northern US last year, um, as well as unprecedented rainfall events, um, flooding events, this looks like flickering to me. This looks like a complex system approaching a tipping point. Okay, so that's the bad news. Are there any countries on Earth which aren't participating in this collective failure? Are there any sort of good news stories? I mean, in the book, you you touch upon certain individual farms. Is there anywhere where this is happening at any kind of scale? So a a country which I think is a world leader on this is, is Costa Rica, which has more than doubled its forest cover and has had this remarkable return of of of, of rainforest or tropical rainforest um with um a lot of species which looked as if they were really on the brink of collapse um now doing well once more and it basically shut down cattle ranching it said you know these ranches which have destroyed the forest they will be returned to forest it's done very well out of that because it's become a global tourism at, at, attraction because it's one of the few places where nature's thriving. Um, but that's not why it did it. It did it because it could see that it, it was it was going to to slide. I mean, the whole system was collapsing. Um, and- what were the political forces responsible for that? Because normally. Obviously, there's big business in ranching, and they're the people yeah. that have political influence. And yeah, so it was. I mean, I mean, apparently, you know, there, there was quite a political fight, but there was just happened to be enlightened government for just long enough to 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 let that happen. And I mean, it's a sign. Uh, what I find, particularly in the environmental movement, is is people give up hope too easily. You know, people succumb to despair far too quickly. And there's loads of bad news around. You know, I've been telling you bad news now for the past however many minutes, but, um, and people throw up their hands and say, oh, there's nothing you can do. But the thing is that just, just as all complex systems have tipping points, right? The same applies to society. And, and there are, uh, society is a complex system and, and it has all the classic attributes of a complex system with its adaptive and emergent, um, uh, characteristics and feedbacks and self-regulation and all the rest of it. Now, you can have good tipping points as well. And, uh, there's been quite a lot of research now, both observational and experimental studies, all coming to roughly the same conclusion that once a an idea achieves roughly 25% acceptance within a society, then everyone just about, apart from a small hardcore, most people swing round and, and accept it. 
Um, so if you think of um, the remarkable change in pers perspectives on homophobia in in the course of one generation, you know, where where society was basically homophobic, to it being in most quarters now unacceptable. That that happened very quickly indeed, and it's because. You know, thanks to the work of activists, mm. it reached a social tipping point. We've done the same now with rewilding. I think. I think it's fair to say that. You know, when I published Feral in 2013, it was considered. You know, most people didn't know what it was. Uh, a lot of people who did thought it was an appalling idea. Um, and now it's just totally mainstream. It's like you know, <laughs> the rewilding Britain's garden at the Chelsea Flowers show is just one best in show. I mean, you know, it's like a wolf one winning best in show at Crofts, you know, mm -hmm. it's like it's just so bizarre. But that that's how mainstream it's gone. And you think that's happened in less than 10 years? Yeah, yeah, no, it has. I mean, I've watched it. I, 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 I open mouthed, just astonished at the speed. And, and so a, a lot of what seems impossible from the perspective of where we happen to stand at any one moment, in with the perspective of just a few years, you can see how things can literally tip. You you reach that tipping point. And most people, most of the time, side with the status quo, for, for good or for ill, you know, very often for ill. But if you change what people perceive to be the status quo, people will swing round to catch that wind and and then things things shift with great speed. And so so you know, I see all this despair around me. And sometimes I think the despair is quite convenient because it means you don't have to do anything. Oh, I give up. You know? mm -hmm. um, but actually it's it's unwarranted because of the amazing speed with which things can shift. Sticking with rewilding, I suppose somebody listening to this would say, okay, I get vegan diets and we need to farm less and so on. But what on earth does reintroducing wolves to parts of Canada or to Scotland or to England what does that have to do with addressing climate change? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? But a, a lot, as it turns out. So um, there was a study in North America showing that if wolves were allowed to occupy their full range there, because they're only in a few pockets now, um, I think it was the equivalent of taking 30 million cars off the road. And, and the reason for that is that they... Um, they suppress and herd around the, the herbivores, the deer and the, and, and, and the elk and the moose there, um, which allows forests to grow back. And those forests absorb carbon, um, when they grow back. And as the great, um, 19th century naturalist John, John Muir said, if you try to pick out anything by itself, you find it hooked to everything else in the universe. Very profound. <laughs> and what's the resistance like in, in England of, Farmers to rewilding. It's something it exists some, some to some extent in Scotland because of these large private estates and so yeah, on. Yeah. What's the state of play in England? Well, it is changing. I mean, I mean it, it, you know, I, I favor what I call a democratic rewilding. So the sort of thing being done in um, by the Borders Forest Trust in on the Scottish English border, um, and by the Langham Moor Initiative, which is doing a community buyback for rewilding or Trees for Life, which bought an, an old estate through public subscription. There's quite a lot of aristocratic rewilding going on. And while, you know, it's much better that aristocrats use their land for rewilding than for grouse shooting or deer stalking or whatever, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the model I favor as, uh, you know, we need land reform as well in this country, but some people are swinging round and partly because of the economics of it. You know, livestock farming is totally uneconomic. It is completely dependent on public money and we could change the face of Britain 
almost overnight by just changing what we pay for. And, um, and at the moment we're paying three billion pounds a year in this country to keep on trashing ecosystems mm. by having your sheep and cattle in the hills. And the thing is that, um, um, for, for grazing animals, tree seedlings are, are very tasty and nutritious and they'll select those out. They'll pick those out. So until you, you get your numbers of grazing animals down to really tiny levels, like one sheep per 20 hectares, that sort of level, you're going to lose all the young trees in the landscape. And so when the old trees die, there's nothing left and they're the main agent of deforestation. So if you can remove those cattle and sheep, the trees will come back. I mean, you might in some places need to give them a helping hand, but in many places they'll, they'll come back by themselves and you get a great resurgence of wildlife coming back with them. Now I'd love to reintroduce lynx, wolves, several other species going all the way up to elephants. So there's not much clamor for them yet in this country, but they, they used to live here. We've got an elephant adapted ecosystem. That's, that's for later, but um, <laughs> some way down the line. But, but, you know, there's enormous potential for restoring ecosystems right across the planet. You mentioned um, grouse shooting. I suppose to many people, that is their idea of nature in Britain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why is it not natural? I mean, w with regards to grouse shooting, it, it seems picturesque and untouched. And yeah. These are the arguments we have for conservation. Well, if you can hunt these animals and you can eat them, it means you can preserve this state of nature. Why is that not right? It's really striking. If you go up um, onto a grouse moor in, in, in the summer, um, in, in, as in many of England's national parks, you know, a lot of them have grouse moors on them, um, you'll see grouse everywhere. The, the, the grouse are like, like louse, you know, they're like set all over the land, everywhere. It's extraordinary. They're, they're a wild bird. They're not bred. They're not like pheasants, which are which are bred and released. They're basically pheasants are like chickens put mm. into the countryside to shoot. Um, the grouse are a wild bird, but in order to get those numbers, you have to kill all the predators. And there's industrial killing of foxes, of stoats, of weasels, of polecats, of raptors. So all all the the hawks right right across, including highly protected species. You know, be it goshawks, be it hen harriers, be it eagles. It's a massacre. An absolute massacre. And a lot of it is illegal. I mean, you, it's amazing what you're allowed to kill legally, but there's a whole lot of, on top of that, which is killed illegally. And there's whole areas which should be swarming with hen harriers and golden eagles, and there aren't any at all. And they happen to coincide with where the, the grouse shoots are. But also, they burn those grouse moors to prevent trees from coming back mm. and to prevent, uh, and it's just, it's amazing. In this day and age, you're allowed to burn the land mm. just so some extremely rich people can shoot these birds out of the sky. Should we ban it? Should we ban it? Yeah, no, totally. Absolutely. I mean, it's just disgraceful. It's got no part in any 21st century economy. Um, it's for the ultra rich and their carbon footprints and environmental footprints are already massively greater than anyone else's. Mm. And that makes them even bigger still. Yeah, I mean, the counter argument is, well, people should be able to do what they like. And I think obviously your book does a great um, job of clarifying how that's complete nonsense. But, you know, and it applies also to SUVs. So if people want to drive an SUV, they can. Well, no, they can't because there are a certain amount of road spaces, parking spaces, there's a, there's a finite amount of clean air so them doing that has a necessary net sort of deficit effect for the rest of us. They, they, they take something from the rest of us. And the thing is, there's this weird assumption, which is, is almost sort of 
core to capitalism. It's right at the heart of capitalism. And it it was sort of formalized by John Locke in his second treatise, which is, uh, in its modern version, the amount of money in your bank account uh, equates to the share of natural wealth to which you're entitled. So if you've got enough numbers in your bank account, you can buy a whole tract of land. Um, you can um, buy a private jet which consumes loads of our atmospheric space. You can buy bluefin tuna to eat. You can eat organic pasture-fed beef, which is about the worst of all agricultural products, every day if you want. You can do all this really harmful stuff because your money entitles you to do it. But why? I mean, what natural law, what, what just principle says those numbers in your bank account enable you to take the lion's share of something which no person ever made, um, something which everybody needs. These are our life support systems. We're essential to our survival. Um, and you can come along and say, this is mine by dint of the fact that I happen to have these numbers in a completely different place. And you translate one thing into a completely different thing. And it's a sort of slate of hand. It's a kind of magic. This is a magic which fools us into accepting this earth-eating system. Mm. I had a friend actually sticking on, on grouse shoots. I had a friend who, he went uh, pheasant shooting. He was a very posh friend. He was very well off. This is when I was an undergraduate, uh, although we re remain on good terms. And he went shooting and I said, I happened to be driving around with my dad at the time. And I said, well, what are you doing with the, the pheasants? And he said, oh, we're not going to eat them. We're just going to chuck them in the bin. Yeah, they dumped them in these great pits. Yeah, and so we went to get them. My dad skinned the bird and we ate it. And, and for him, he was like, is this a thing in England? People just kill animals and then don't consume them. And I said, well, I, I mean, is, that, is that a normal thing? Yeah, it's totally normal. The majority of pheasants are not eaten. They're, they're, so, so look, here's the thing about pheasants. Um, and they're, and they're quasi-tame, right? I mean, they almost go yeah, up yeah, to people yeah, and they're yeah. just shooting them in the head. So so when 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 you're rearing pheasants, because they're like chickens, you know, you, you, you hatch them out the eggs and you, you rear them, it's just like you do with chickens. At that point, they're livestock, right? Mm -hmm. And that entitles you um, to various tax breaks, subsidies, et cetera, or, or depending on, on where you are and how you're doing it. Um, but you're not allowed to shoot livestock, right? So as soon as they've been released into the woods, even if you're still feeding them when they're out there, they're wild animals. But you and I can't come and grab one because for the, for that purpose, they're livestock. You're stealing from right. you're stealing somebody else's livestock. At the end of the shooting season, right? These wild animals, which have to be wild in order to be shot, because you can't shoot livestock, um, um, can um, they'll get rounded up into enclosures to become next year's breeding stock. But you're not allowed to round up wild animals into enclosures. For the, so for that purpose, they become livestock. Mm -hmm. However, if during the roundup, one of them flies across a road and causes a car crash, it's a wild animal again. So what we see is this labyrinthine law. Just you, you, I wonder who could have written these laws. It's bizarre, isn't it? You, you, it's, it's a mystery, you know. <laughs> but these labyrinthine laws, just just giving the shooting industry whatever it needs at any one point in order to allow this barbaric, horrible, brutal business to go ahead. And 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 check this. So um, uh, at pheasant release time, there's a greater weight of pheasants and reared partridges in the countryside than of all wild birds put together. Wow. And these are omnivorous birds. They eat everything. 
So they eat the baby lizards, they eat the frogs, they eat all the caterpillars, they eat all the seeds, they eat all the flower heads. They just sweep through the whole lot, just gobbling up our ecosystem. And in order to um, to protect them, all the predators are killed again. You know, all, all the foxes and the buzzards and the um, and, and the other birds of prey and the stoats and the weasels again. And it's just this carnage going on. And we all say, oh, well, it's traditional. You know, look, these guys are wearing tweeds. It's got to be okay. It's 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 just totally weird culture. I mean, the pheasant shooting, the industrial pheasant shooting goes back to George V. He, he kicked all that off. And the industrial grouse shooting goes back to Victoria and Albert. So it sort of starts off as this really sort of high snob value, royal thing. And then the aristocracy mimic them. And then the, the the sort of lower nobility mimic the aristocracy. And then everybody wants in on it because that's the way of distinguishing yourself as as a member of that set. And you've got to wear your red trousers and your tweed jacket and your tweed, tweed cap and the rest of it. And then you've arrived and you've got your Range Rover with the spray on mud, you know, and, and all that. And if, if you go around the average stately home in this country, it's like you think, this is a death cult. Because everything on the walls is to do with killing. You know, it's either like suits of armor and weapons and stuff, or it's battle scenes and the paintings, or it's hunting scenes, or it's stuffed animals. Or, and it's just death, death, death everywhere you look. This is actually a death cult. And this is running the British countryside. And it's interesting how the, the sort of working class sports from a similar period, so cockfighting, you know, bull baiting, dog baiting, fighting, dog fighting yep. that's all gone. And people think, well, that's monstrous, that's which of course it is, it's mm -hmm. disgusting. But the exact same practices for the upper class are still there. And that's not just, not just normal and accepted, it's venerated. I you know, know. It's yeah. Yeah, it's quite amazing. And, and again, it's, it's a thing we do not see. And we have all these blind spots. You know, we focus on a few things and sometimes quite rightly, you know, we're in the midst of this Partygate scandal and it is disgusting and appalling and all the rest of it. But, you know, as we do so, like a hundred other disgusting and appalling things are sliding by, which we're just not seeing at all. And, and we do have this tendency to, to latch onto some things and ignore everything else. And I understand that because you, you, we don't have the bandwidth to engage with everything. But some of those things we're ignoring are much bigger than the things we're paying attention to. Mm. And that's the case with a huge number of environmental issues. You mentioned organic beef being perhaps the worst thing anybody can consume. I suppose for, for some people watching, they would think, well, that's, that's surprising. I thought if you're eating... For eating organic, that's positive. It's going to be better animal welfare. It's going to be better produce for me mm. and my health. Why is organic beef worse than the, the factory farm stuff with steroids? Or I'm, God knows glad, what? I'm glad you picked this up because it's just this constant refrain. We've got to eat less and better meat, and less and better meat means those cattle grazing out in the pastures organically and stuff. And, and well, the first thing to say is you know, factory animal farming is appalling and horrible. You know, I mean, this whole journey started for me when I was a teenager working on an intensive pig farm. And, and, and my first thought was, uh, this isn't what I was told farming was about. And the second thought was, why is this legal? And, you know, I quite enjoyed the work in some ways because I love physical work, but it was, it was awful. It was horrible. And, and and that sort of triggered my curiosity. You know, it's like, what, what what's going on here? Why do we why do we accept this? Why why is this okay? And so uh, everything I'm about to say is not in any way a defence of factory farming, right? Mm -hmm. But oh, appallingly and horribly, as that farming goes on, 
the alternative, which is to say, let's have extensive farming with animals in pastures. It might be kinder to the animal, but it is much, much worse for the planet. We've already talked about the impacts of intensive farming, all that chicken feed being produced in Brazil and the rest of it. But by far and away, the biggest impact in terms of land use is grazing livestock. So people talk about urban sprawl, right? One percent of the planet is urban area. That that's our own living space. Uh, human living space is one percent, and it's absolutely right. We should campaign against urban sprawl. It's bad for the countryside. It's also bad for the city. It's very hard to have effective, well-run, sustainable cities if they're, if they're spread out over a very large area. So dense urban settlements is is actually works much better. So yeah, campaign against urban sprawl. But that's one percent of the planet, right? Agriculture occupies 40% of the planet, of which um, arable farming, in other words, all the cereals, all the other grains, all the crops we eat, that's just 12%, right? But the 28% is pasture-fed beef, um, sheep, and, and, and goats, but mostly cattle. It's pasture-fed cattle. And yet, from that 28% of the planet dedicated to those cattle, for grazing alone, we get 1% of our protein. 1%. It's the most profligate and wasteful land use you could possibly imagine. It's just extraordinary. And all of that is land, which would otherwise be rainforest, wetland, natural grassland, savanna, wetland. Oh, sorry, I said wetland. Um, all these, all these different habitats, um, which tend to contain far more carbon, but also are absolutely essential for most of the life forms on earth today. Most species cannot live alongside any human extractive industry. They need those wild habitats in which to live. And by occupying so much of the surface of the planet to produce so little food, that could be possibly the number one environmental impact which humans exert on, on the planet. You know, I was talking a moment ago about the things we don't see, right? And we're quite rightly very concerned about climate breakdown. So we should be, absolutely, and water pollution and air pollution and the rest of it. But land use as an environmental issue, you know, I, I would say that is the number one metric. You know, that is the most important thing. How much land are we using for our own activities? Because any land we're using cannot be used by wild ecosystems. And, and we depend on wild ecosystems as everything does, because if they go down, their system tips and, and that tips other systems. And we could easily see that domino effect taking down the earth systems. Now, if we, if we just get out of livestock farming altogether, we stop animal farming. Um, there are huge amounts of the planet's surface, which could be returned to nature, could draw down vast quantities of carbon, could stop the sixth great extinction in its tracks, could see a massive ecological restoration, and in doing so, could actually be the thing that gets us through the 21st century. Because without that, we might not get there. Mm. And of course, there's the argument around pandemics. I mean, you talked yeah, about yeah. Um, how this can impact the human world. Uh, you talk about it a bit in the book, and again, going back to half-earth socialism, I mean, they document that smallpox i think comes via a gerbil into camels about four thousand years ago and then you know it comes into the our species everything that people think about measles chicken pox um mumps all of these things are a result of zoonotic spillover and our unique relationship to animals 
And people think, well, that's always been the case, but it hasn't. It's only in the last 12,000 years and it's only since animal agriculture. That's right. And so there are these two, um, two really devastating health impacts. One, exactly as you say, these zoonotic diseases jumping from our domesticated livestock into the human population because we're hugger mugger with those livestock and, and easily to, to cross that barrier. The other thing is the destruction of antibiotics as an effective medicine. Because something like 75% of the world's antibiotics are used to treat livestock, or not even to treat them. They're used prophylactically in case these livestock all packed together in these enormous factories in which almost all our meat comes, incidentally. Very little of it comes from the outdoors. It's mostly from these massive livestock factories. Because there's so many in there at the same time, they treat them prophylactically with antibiotics. Otherwise, they're going to get some illness which will wipe the whole lot out. And that is a perfect breeding ground for antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And, and they then very easily jump into the human food chain. Um, they're spread all over the land in the manure. Um, uh, and we've got this massive antibiotic crisis. I mean, just the other day, there was a new UN report saying that 1.2 million people a year are dying because of antibiotic-resistant bacteria now. And this is just the beginning of it. It's it's going to get worse and worse. I mean, the, there are going to be fewer and fewer antibiotics we can continue to use. And then that's good by modern medicine. I mean, you can't do surgery without antibiotics. You can't do it safely. You can't do cancer treatment safely without antibiotics. Childbirth will once more become this highly hazardous moment. Um, and, this, and this is all... We're just sacrificing this so we can carry on eating meat and milk. You know, we, um, we don't need to. It's so frustrating. Do you think that animal farming is the next oil and the new hydrocarbons? Because, I mean, the, the arguments just stack up. Just the antibiotic one is, is so powerful. The pandemics, the climate crisis, if you love you know, the natural world, mm. there's so much there. And I think it's, again, it's as powerful an argument as, say, in the early 1990s about the need to decarbonize. I think, if anything, it's stronger, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, 50, 60 years ago, if you said to somebody with their, their first car and their first package holiday, one day people will be saying we need to move beyond hydrocarbons. They would say, what the hell are you talking about? And while we're not acting decisively enough today, I think there's, there's broadly universal consent that we need to do it. I mean, the question is how quickly enough. Do you think, you talked about tipping points, that over the next 30, 40 years, people will come to see animal agriculture in a similar way? I, I, I think so. I think so. Well, especially now that we need it even less. And the reason for that is we have a whole new source of protein and fat and and when something becomes amendable it becomes intolerable you know when you have an alternative it's suddenly why are we still doing this and and now we have an alternative it is amendable and and this is um in the form of microbial protein um through created through precision fermentation um, and um, I was um, I went to the um, a laboratory in Helsinki where they're producing um, it's basically flour made from bacteria um, with a tiny environmental footprint by comparison to livestock or for that matter soya or palm oil or all the stuff which this could eventually replace um, and and it's just brewing really it's it's very similar to making yeast for for, for bread making or or or, or making beer um, and and the amazing thing about these bacteria is that they require no photosynthetic products at all incredible they're, they're hydrogen oxygenating bacteria the the technology was developed by nasa in the 1960s because how, how a, 
um, you know, if you've got a, a, a very long running spaceship, how, how are people going to feed themselves? You can brew this stuff without sunlight or, or, or plants or anything because you, it's a soil bacterium which, um, combines hydrogen with oxygen to, to create its own food. And so all you need is water and electricity to electrolyze the water, extract the hydrogen, um, carbon dioxide drawn directly from the air. Um, a, a, a few uh, mineral salts, and that's it. That's it. Uh, the bacteria just feed on that, and you can produce them at extraordinary speed very cheaply. And then you've got this sort of endless supply of protein and fat because they're about 60% protein, about 30% lipids, fat, which you can basically turn into anything you want. I mean, I, I asked them because it was very simple I asked him to make me a pancake. I was the first person outside the lab ever to eat a pancake made of this bacterial protein, a small flip for man. <laughs> and um, and weirdly, it tasted just like a pancake. Really? It really did. You, I mean, you, it really, you, you've got the benefit of knowing both now that yeah, you're a vegan, etc. Yeah, that it really tastes it like a really, pancake. It really tasted like a pancake because basically, so what you what we had to do, we had to dilute it with wheat flour because otherwise we would have made an omelette, right? If it's 60% protein, yeah. you know, it, it would have been pretty well an omelette. And it actually smells eggy when it comes out because it's, that is the sort of protein smell. And, um, so we had to, and normally when you make a pancake, you start with wheat flour, right? And you add your protein in the form of egg and milk. In this case, we had to subtract protein and add right. the carbohydrate. And so you got a similar protein content. And it was just like, this is actually a pancake. You know, and, and it's amazing. You know, we think we're tasting something, um, unique when we eat a particular protein form, but in a way our brain is is fooling us. Um, you, you know, there's been those experiments with sort of different colored yogurts, which people think taste differently, but but actually they all taste exactly the same. Mm. And and to, to some extent that, that happens and basically protein tastes like protein, but you can also make it taste like lots of other things. And, and there's a whole new cuisine in the offing now. I mean, just as the first Neolithic farmers to catch a wild cow, weren't thinking about camembert, you know, we've no idea what is going to come out of the end of this. And it's just this enormous, exciting possibility that as long as we can keep this open source, because this is a really important thing that we don't let corporations capture this. They've captured far too much of the food chain already. We could envisage every town on earth having its own brewery, mm. making its products specifically for whatever the local tastes are, whatever, whatever local people want. At tiny cost, you know, we've got this endless potential supply of, of really, really low cost, high nutritional value, healthy protein and fat that you can produce and then turn it into whatever products you want to, you want to make. Some of which will substitute meat and milk that we're eating now, but that'll soon become quite boring. Why would you want to do it when there's all these other things you can make, which we haven't even thought of yet? You know, while a lot of sort of food sovereignty and food justice campaigners instinctively um, are, um, are repulsed by the idea, it could actually deliver food sovereignty and food justice much more effectively than farming can, because you can do it anywhere. You know, there are huge parts of the world which have to import most of their food because they don't have enough good agricultural land to support their populations. Um, we've got this very dangerous situation where countries have polarized into super exporters and super importers. And of most of the, of, of the grains that we rely on, you know, um, rice, wheat, maize, soy, um, which is like 60% of the calories that farmers grow, it's about five countries produce a great bulk of those exports. 
and two of them are Russia and Ukraine. You know, you don't have to take very much out of that system mm. for that system to look very dodgy indeed, you know, and to look like it's approaching a tipping point as, as a global food system. You know, there's a lot of real structured, structural deficiencies now in the global food system, which are a big, big problem. Um, and, but it, but by doing it this way, you can localize your food production. And, and you can, it could be much cheaper. You're not paying, um, um, soft currencies for hard currencies. You know, you, 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 you're not buying with, um, using your local currency to buy stuff on the dollar market. You know, you're producing your own food locally and it could have a massive impact in reducing hunger, but also in allowing people to uh, assert sovereignty over their own food supply. It's interesting you mention Ukraine and Russia because there's obviously the geopolitical element. And I, I think the left doesn't like to talk about this, but war making and the state has often been a way through which progress happens. So Bismarck introduces pensions. Uh, you see big welfare reforms after the, after the Franco-Prussian War because the French state says, well, our people are shorter and less less strong than, than German citizens by the looks of it. So we need to have a sort of a minimal threshold for their welfare. And I feel similarly with this stuff, so the technologies you touched on the book, stuff I write about in Fully Automated Luxury Communism, which you are, I think, rightly circumspect about, they're technologically far more difficult. So cellular agriculture, whether that's stuff like Impossible Burger, where you're changing a, a vegetable protein, which is obviously much simpler, or you're effectively manufacturing an animal protein without killing any animals. All of this is clearly going to be a game changer for food security, and I think it's no it's no um, coincidence that Singapore is the first country to be you know creating the, the the regulatory framework for a lot of this. So you look at countries like the UAE, Malta, Singapore, Hong Kong, quite small land masses, quite highly populated, but no real agricultural land to speak of, and you could see why they would be all over this. And then, of course, you've got the global base of people who are already vegan or vegetarian. You've got the fitness community. And already you think, well, even if a lot of people poo-poo this, this is going to be a mainstream technology quite quite quickly, I yeah, imagine. No, I, th I think so. I think so. And, 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 and so the other thing I need to throw into this mix, so I mentioned it briefly just a moment ago. So, you know, we were talking about complex systems, right? And I've become a bit of a complex system obsessive, as you could probably tell, but... So I, I did a huge amount of reading into this because it suddenly occurred to me when I was, um, after I'd got a little way into the scientific literature, that the global food system is beginning to look very much like the global financial system in the run up to 2008. It's become unbelievably concentrated. So, um, according to one estimate, four companies control 90% of the global grain trade. Just four companies. Wow. And those same companies are becoming vertically integrated as well. They're buying into seed, into chemicals, into machinery, into packaging, processing, retailing, um, the, the whole, the where whole gamut. Where are they based? These four um, companies? Well, so, so you've got is, is sort of Cargill. It's, um, um, this, uh, huge chem China and conglomerate. Uh, they do change from year to year. So they change their names all the time. Right. Syngenta. It's, um, 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 uh, Louis Dreyfus. Um, so basically European, Archie North Daniels, America, Midland. China. Yeah. 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 Bro broadly speaking. Um, and they, they're massive and they're highly interlinked in ways which aren't always completely obvious, just like the banks were right now. 
what complex systems theory tells you, and, and again, you know, we, we, these, these are fairly consistent principles right across all complex systems, is that your system is likely to be resilient if no particular nodes within it are dominant, if um, those nodes are quite weakly connected to each other, and if their behavior is not synchronized, right? And because if that's the case, shocks can't easily be transmitted through the whole system. They stop. They're sort of circuit breakers within that system. But if, like the banks in the run-up to 2008, and in fact, the chief economist of the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, did a really fascinating complex system systems analysis of what went wrong in finance. It's a really great paper. In fact, he wrote with one of my old ecology lecturers, um, Robert May. And so he went to him and said, what can ecology teach us about why, why the banks nearly went down? And, and May said, well, actually, we've been working on exactly this, but on a, in a different system. And it's a fascinating, brilliant paper. And then Haldane did this speech to the Bank of England explaining it all in layman's terms. It was, it was very good. And, and he'd say, so, you know, what, Ecology shows us, because ecology was pretty well the first place where people were studying complex systems in, in a, in a comprehensive way, mm. is, is that if you have these, you get these super dominant nodes and nodes are like sort of knots in your fishing net. And, and they become very strongly linked to other super dominant n- nodes and they all begin operating in the same way. That is a highly fragile system because one thing goes wrong in one node and it can bring the whole lot down. So when Lehman Brothers collapsed, if it weren't for an instant and massive global bailout, the whole financial system would have gone down. Now we can totally argue with the way they bailed them out and who got the money and the rest of it, but there's no question that enormous and urgent measures were needed to prevent total collapse in in, in finance. And And what we're seeing now is these enormous nodes developing, not just the big corporations, but also these sort of super exporter n- nations, um, particular ports through which the, 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 the food is passing and particular choke points. So a huge proportion of global food trade goes through the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal or the Straits of Malacca or the Turkish Straits or the Babel Mandab or the Straits of Hormuz. Um, and, and you only need a couple of those to go down and there's very serious trouble. Now, last year, the Suez Canal got, um, um, jammed up completely when a freighter got stuck across it. This year, the Turkish Straits are more or less unpassable because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, you know, it's not hard to see mm. how the food chain could snap. And what makes it worse is that We've seen this sort of global trade harmonization, as they call it, um, and setting the same global standards everywhere. We've seen massive infrastructure improvements, as they're called, better roads, better ports, all the rest of it. And this has all smoothed the system. And you think, oh, well, that makes it more efficient. So that's going to be good. It makes you know, our food supply more reliable, surely. But what that's done is to enable companies to switch from stocks to flows. So they don't hold stocks anymore. It's all just in time. So if that chain snaps, suddenly there isn't any food. I mean, basically, the world's food stocks are at sea at the moment. That is our food stock. And if that gets jammed up for some reason or another, or if the ships don't get loaded in the first place because, you know, Russia's invaded Ukraine, there's no food from Russia or Ukraine suddenly, um, then, then instantly that chain is broken. And not only are people going to go hungry immediately, 
as the shelves will just empty overnight, as they did at the beginning of the pandemic, for instance. But also, you could then see a chain reaction going on through 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 the whole food system, which is exacerbated by speculation. There's massive financial speculation in food now. Now, when they bailed out the banks, well, you could do that with finance because you could borrow money from the future, right? You can't borrow food from the future. It's a bit of a concern because with the recapitalization of the banks in, in 2008, like you say, you say to the central bank, we'll create some bonds and you know, we'll, we'll basically create some zeros on a computer and pass them between various institutions. But when you're talking about the real world and food and millions of people needing their next meal, that's a, that's a much bigger logistical challenge. It, it literally keeps me awake at night. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that figuratively. I wake up in the middle of the night and think, Oh Christ, blind. This can't be true. But you know, I've been reading these scientific papers now going back 10 years mm. saying, governments, you need to be aware of this. This is really, really scary. Mm. You know, this is, this is, this is worse than you could possibly imagine because if this goes and, and everyone's ignored it, it's been mm. completely ignored. And you know, someone said, you know, how every disaster movie starts with, with, with the scientists being ignored. You know, for 10 years, these scientists have been ignored on what could be the most important issue of all. Mm. And no one's been paying attention to it. But, but some countries are on top of it to an extent. So for instance, France, I think, produces like 10% of the, of the world's wheat, which is just astonishing for such mm. a small country. Yeah, yeah. India, obviously, huge numbers of people have domestic food deprivation, but if it wanted to tomorrow to stop exporting rice, etc., it can it can broadly look after itself. Actually, this is a really interesting example because in mid-April, um, when it became clear that we that no food was going to be coming out of Ukraine, mm. which is a hugely important um, grain producer and grain exporter, uh, the Indian government came forward and said, "Don't worry, we've got a great harvest on the way. We'll fill the gap." We'll raise our exports because we've got great harvest. Then that enormous heat wave struck northern India and Pakistan, and the grain just shriveled on the plant. And and within four weeks, far from raising its exports, India had imposed a total export ban. Mm. At which point, the price of food shot up even higher, and 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 even more people are thrown into food insecurity and hunger, and and. So yes, countries can. Certain countries can look after themselves. Mm. Some can, but there are now huge uh, areas of the world where they're totally dependent on imports. So if you look at Egypt, and in fact, the whole of North Africa, most of the Middle East, um, some major sections of Sub-Saharan Africa as well. You know, you cut those imports off, instant starvation, instant. Mm. I mean, Britain's hardly in a good place. No. I know we've always been a net food importer because of the empire and so on, but even during the Second World War, people think, oh, we were somehow self-sufficient, but we were still yeah, importing no, we huge amounts of beef from Argentina and whatnot. Yeah, and grain from Canada. You know, yeah. That's what all the convoys were about. Yeah, yeah and yeah. I, 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 we do have a political class, the media as well, who just think the last 35 years are normal, which is massive global trade integration, frictionless trade, nobody's playing up. But like you say, all it needs is a, is a few countries, a few big players that say, well, we're actually not going to export food anymore. Russia, Turkey, Iran, just, and they're not even global. We're not talking China, USA, not to want to play by the global rules anymore. It's mayhem. And, it's, that, and that's not even the worst case scenario. That's just, that's just broadly speaking, what you would have expected in the mid 19th century. Because on top of that, you've got the climate shocks then you know and so we've already seen this climate shock shock in india which you know just as we are talking you know is playing out in 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 terms of global food supplies r right now but you know that's nothing to what 
unless we get a grip on this, is coming down the line. Mm. I mean, there's one estimate which suggests that with just one more degree of, of global heating, 32% of the planet's surface dries out. We'd be looking at spontaneous droughts going from Portugal to Pakistan, to give one example, you know, taking out this most of the wheat belt, most of the world's wheat belt. You know, well, no, no, not most of it, but a very large part. I mean, Eurasia's wheat belt, basically. Just and then, of course, farming goes further north, and that means you tear down more trees and you go even further warming. Yeah, I know, I know. And and it's it's actually very hard to see how we can farm our way out of this because not least because um um you know we're growing food demand driven primarily by the growing demand for meat, which is um you know a very inefficient way of eating because you have to um feed animals far more grain then you get uh, food out the other end of the animal because it's um um, um because they they use up they, they they burn off the calories but small thing like consciousness and well, whatnot you exactly know. and there's lots of parts of the animal which the animal has to make which you're not going to eat and all of that and so um so you you've got all that huge amount of food demand rising because of the the rising demand for meat um so on the current trajectory we need to grow about. 50% more food by 2050, right? And, and if you look at the sort of most scientific literature, you say, yeah, so we have to close the yield gap. We have to raise yields in places where yields are low, which, yeah, you know, is, is, is a worthy aim. But when you look at what it depends on, there's several factors that it depends on, which just don't exist. And one of them is water, because a, a lot of that closing the yield gap depends on more irrigation. Now, irrigation water is already maxed out in many, perhaps most of the world's key food producing areas. So if you look at the Indus Valley, for instance, which is the largest irrigated area on earth, 95% of the water coming down the Indus is used for irrigation. Yeah. And yet, um, India and Pakistan are in- intending to uh, raise the amount of water for irrigation by 43% by 2035. Well, how are they going to do that? But some, it doesn't and, exist. But also some of this is because you've got glaciers which are melting, yeah, which yeah. then means you've got temporarily a little bit more water. It's like, that's right. That's not a good thing. Because- this, is, this is this is a really, and sorry, I keep piling on these really dangerous situations. But so so the Indus Valley, right, you, you've got three nuclear powers in, in its catchment, um, China, India, Pakistan, right? Arguably, the war in Kashmir is, is a proxy war over water between India and Pakistan. There is an Indus River Treaty um, struck between them in 1960 about the division of those waters, who gets what. And it's been quite successful up to now. But there's nothing in that treaty about what happens if the flow of the river starts to decline or demand exceeds supply. And both things are going to happen because, as you rightly observe, the flow of the river is untypically high because the glaciers and snowpack are are melting um, as as a result of global heating. Obviously, that can't last. um, And about um, mid-century, we're going to see a sort of two-thirds decline in, in, in the size of those glasses. They just won't be able to um, keep supplying that water anymore. At the same time, future growth in that region is entirely predicated on there being more and more water. I mean, it's just like magic water. Where's it going to come mm. from? Um, not just for agriculture, but also for the cities growing in that region, for a whole lot of industries, including textile industry, which needs a lot of water. Um, and it's like... Hang on a moment. You've got this declining resource. You've got these two nuclear powers. They both want more than is available there than is ever going to exist. They're already at each other's throats. It's not 
easy to see this ending well. Yeah, I mean, in that part of the world with the glaciers, I think you've got the Brahmaputra, the Ganges, and the there's another river. But you're talking, you know, you are talking. I think, I think two billion people depend on this this network of fresh water, and it's just like you say, it's it's quite frightening. Um, you were on GMB. I hope you're not going to be raising yeah, this, yeah, yeah. and uh, you were visibly upset, um, and uh, you were quite close to tears, and you were talking about oh, no, I did actually, I cried. I was slightly mortified, but I did actually well, like, yeah, burst into tears. Well, yeah. That's fine. Um, yeah. And you were worried about whether you'd make the right decision to have children or not. And obviously, given your job, who you are, you have to engage with this data all of the time. And I wondered, was there any particular reason why it was then that you got so upset? Has something changed? Has your assessment or your analysis changed? Because you've been immersed in this world for 30, 25 years. 37 years now. <laughs> yeah, 37 years um, um, in my professional life in this. Um, yeah, what changed was I'd just come out of COP26, right, the climate conference in Glasgow. We, we I, I saw you yeah. up there, yeah, and um, we had a great chat. But um, it was... I mean, in the streets, as you knew, there was this amazing atmosphere. There were people from all over the world. There was a real sense that the global south was leading now, mm. you know, which was really exciting to me because, you know, justice has got to be at the heart of this, climate justice, right? And so the leadership should be from the frontline nations, which are being hammered by the climate breakdown that we've caused. Mm. They haven't, but they, they're, they're the ones who are suffering it most. Um, and, and a real sense of, people pulling together to, to fight this existential crisis. And then you, as I'm sure you saw for yourself, you sort of pass through the sort of double doors of this conference center where it's all going on. And it's like stepping into a different world, this sort of weird, otherworldly, sort of air-conditioned spaceship <laughs> thing, or like a giant international airport or something, where, mm. where it's just like, this could be anywhere. It could be anywhere on Earth, and it's just sort of landed here. And, and it was like all that vitality and determination in the streets was just sucked out, and people were wandering about like zombies, you know, in this. And, and you could see that, the powerful nations, while a lot of the small nations were deeply serious about it, and there was a lot of leadership coming from some of the island nations and 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 some of the poorest nations on earth, they weren't being heard at all. The powerful nations were just pissing around, and you had Boris Johnson, you know, who was meant to be hosting this this summit. He turns up on the first day make some bullshit speech about being James Bond, the great white saviour, come come to rescue the world from, from climate breakdown, then gets on a private jet, flies down to London for dinner with a bunch of climate deniers, does what he does best, which is to create a massive scandal, which was um, trying to bail out Owen Paterson because the climate deniers, including Lord Moore, this conservative peer, Charles Moore, had told him, yes, you've got, you've got to save Owen. Um, and even though Owen's been caught with up to his neck in dirty money, mm. you've got to, you've got to bail him out and save him. So Johnson then tries to spike the entire parliamentary process to save Owen. And, and sucks all the oxygen out of the climate talks. And the whole thing just sort of, you know, it just mm. fizzles out from that point onwards. And all the talk before then had been, this is the last chance. This is our one chance to save the world, etc. And, and you, you then come out of it and think, oh my God, we, we're in the hands of morons. 
you know, just at this crucial time, you know, we are the last generation. This is our last chance to stop the tipping point from being reached. And right when we need decisive, effective, good governance, we've got a bunch of total idiots in charge who are just self-interested, um, smear themselves with their own feces. These, they're like the, they're like the yahoos in, in Gulliver's travels, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's like, uh, of all the people at all the times, it could not be worse than this. And so I was in a pretty fragile state when I joined that program. And then, um, there was, it was something about insulate Britain and, ah, oh, look at these morons, lock them all up and stuff. And I was thinking, but no, these are the only people who get it. These are the only people who really grasp the seriousness of this. And, you know, if we're not sitting down and stopping this, who is going to? Because, because the powers that be aren't going to. Mm-hmm. And and I was trying to make this point, and it was just uh, was it just, Richard, was it Richard Madley? And no, it wasn't actually. He wasn't on uh, on duty. I can't remember. I think it was Susanna um, Susanna Reid. Reid, yes, um, I think so. And 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 it was this thing of you know this issue of children comes up, and it's suddenly like Jesus, what have I done? You know, I've got these two kids. I brought them into the world, and I just suddenly all that sort of 37 years of suppressing it really sort of oh, intellectualizing it yeah. you know saying right well according to this paper in geophysical research letters you know sort of putting it in that part of the brain where i should could cope with it suddenly it just uh, it just moved to the other part of the mm. brain and i i just couldn't handle it you're familiar with roman is it krasnarich Roman Krasnarek, yeah. Krasnarek. Yeah, yeah, he's he's, so, he's a friend of mine. Good, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, I because I, I picked up his book, you know, The Good Ancestor, when I was in Vancouver, and I just read it. It looked interesting. Mm-hmm. And it really did hit me as a very powerful argument. And, and like you say, I, I, I think there's a really, I think it's a very sensible thing to say, did I make the right decision with regards to children? But then you think grandchildren, great-grandchildren, we are fucking future generations so badly. Like, you know, touch wood, the planet has trillions more humans after us for thousands of years, million. That's that's the ideal scenario. That's what we've inherited. Our species has been around for four hundred thousand years. We are screwing over these people, these these future humans, so badly. And if they just reflect, and they're going to reflect on why we did. They go, well, they must have had an alternative. They didn't have the technology. They didn't know. You know, it would be like the 1850s with the Industrial Revolution. They didn't know it was raising global temperatures. And then they'll find a program like this somewhere yeah. in some dusty archive and say, oh my god, they knew. They knew yeah. all about it. They and did th- this knowingly. And I think they'll look at people like Richard Madley and Boris Johnson and they just think, I mean, it, it, you know, don't look up was a parody, but I think it goes beyond that. I think you know, jewels would just drop. I mean, they would think that human beings are incapable of such stupidity i know i know and it's it's no blessing to see it it's no blessing to know this to to be be those person oh yeah a few people got it you know i mean there's no there's there's no comfort in that thinking oh yeah well yeah those guys we'll we'll make an exception for it's like no you know sorry you know i I, i'm not going to take any comfort from that because you know i'm panicking here yeah, I mean, inside I'm screaming. You know, I I, I sort of create this sort of you know, rational rational thing. You know, sort of like, well, yes, you know, here here's what the figures say. But inside I'm just going, ah. Oh! So we've said that if people want to change things and act, the best thing they have to do is can give up meat. Mm-hmm. Well, well, the best thing to do is consumers. As a consumer, yes. the best thing to yeah. do is to switch to a plant based diet. I mean, that that makes a huge difference. But the best thing to do is to be a citizen, not a consumer. Mm. Yeah, and and we have to mobilise for for a new system, and and the thing is that you know we haven't talked about it in in much detail, but you know 
all the tools are there. You know, I've looked systematically at how we could change horticulture, how we could change arable agriculture, how we could change the way we produce protein and fat. It's all there. All, all the technologies we need, all the possibilities for altering the way we, 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 we produce our food are right there and ready to be taken. And all that stands in the way is politics. Yeah. And that's where we come in because we are the politics. Yeah. And, and we have to push until we reach that social tipping point where politics change. And you think that social tipping point is coming. You, you sort of say towards the book, you think that we're in a sort of paradigm shift of ethics and technology, which is comparable to the printing press or the contraceptive pill. Mm, yeah. The contraceptive pill was an interesting analog. Can you kind of explain that a bit? Sure. So, so obviously there was already a, a massive demand for, for women's liberation. Um, but it's this thing about, you know, when something is amendable, it's, it's no longer tolerable. And, and suddenly women had the possibility for full reproductive control. And yet men were denying them that possibility. And suddenly it's like, what? Who the fuck are you to stand in our way and prevent us from taking control of our own bodies? Now we've got this very simple technology, which enables us to do this. And not just the pill, obviously, but a whole range of mm. contraception and fa family planning tools, which, which women have. And suddenly that gives a massive boost to the feminist cause because, you know, we have the tools now to take control and free ourselves from the domination of men over our own bodies. And, and so, you know, while the, the demand was already there, it was spurred massively by the possibility opened up by new technology. The same with the printing press, you know, which just opens up the possibility of political change in, in, in ways, you know, the demand was latent, but it was, it was discovered to a large extent by, by the development of this technology. And I think with these new food technologies, particularly the possibility of taking protein and fat production off the farm and into the factory, um, uh, with, without any animal cruelty, with a tiny, tiny land footprint, a tiny fraction of all the environmental impacts that farming has and being able to produce cheaply the full range of humans needs for protein and fat. You know, we'd also obviously grow our vegetables and grains, but we, we got this massive possibility for, for meeting a large part of our nutritional needs without any agriculture at all. Suddenly, all these concerns about the way that animals are treated, about the way that the living planet is treated by animal agriculture, those will all be pushed forward and become much more powerful than they were before now that there's an obvious and easy alternative. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.